Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And we do that better than James. Um, I think I'll, I think in future I'm going to list all of my various well, roles as well. you got more hats than me. No, no, I think they're about the same, but I just use one of them. I should say, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, finance guy on the ABC News, yeah. columnist with the New Daily... Adjunct professor, of, you're not an adjunct no, professor, I'm are you? No, I'm certainly not. No. So, uh, so, Greg, have you got that? You've got to stop underselling uh, Alan and overselling me, all right? Done. There you are. So, okay, um, so you've just lodged a whole lot of questions at Aristocrats, um, Aristocrats meeting, is that right? The AGM, Before coming yes. Here? The yes, AGM. So, uh, so it's now uh, 10 past 12 and the Aristocrat Leisure AGM started at 11. I opened up the questions portal for online questions about 10.30, so I spent about 40 minutes just loading questions on them. This is and, amazing, um, you know, you can, you can load questions, you don't have to be there to no, ask them, you just no, load them in. Correct. And who yeah. asks them? Well, they'll have either the MC, sometimes it's the company secretary reading them out, which is great because it's far more credible to have someone else voicing my smart aleck questions than me myself. So poor company secretary says, here's Stephen Main again yeah. with yeah, a list so, of questions. So which, which is your best question for Aristocrat Leisure, Stephen? Uh, I Come think, on, just uh, tell, don't give us all of them. Just yeah, tell us your nah, best, well, I think your the, one the, best they were question. They going to try and buy this business called uh, Playtech. They were going to spend $5 billion buying this business called Playtech, which is pretty – and it got voted down. It's pretty controversial. Now, it's in the grey market, sort of money laundering, illegal gambling. It's a global online gaming player. It's, and, a, it's and, a money laundering business. Well, no, but it's, they were promising to, to, to not take on the, what they call the grey parts of the business, which is the sort of the, you know, is it unlicensed, basically. Anyway, so the, their founder, the Playtech founder, there was an assassination attempt on his life in Cyprus in October. This Israeli billionaire is worth about $4 billion, who's uh, 51 years old. And that's he was in Cyprus, which is the, ho- the global home of money laundering. So that was sort of a, emblematic of the fact that they were buying a colourful business. So I've just asked them, you know, why didn't they buy 15% on market first rather than have the shareholders vote it down? And were they aware of the full colourful history of the company, such as the assassination attempt on the founder's life in October? Well, if they do, if they weren't aware of that, they uh, they should have been because I, I would have thought due bullet. diligence. They would dodged have, the bullet because it was a very colourful business they were trying to buy, and colourful being a, a euphemism yeah, for dodgy. The, the shareholders who voted it down are in the orbit of the founder and the whole illegal online grey. So they didn't want a blue chip Aussie company taking on their. Interesting. Do we, do we really call Aristocrat Leisure Blue Chip? Yes, $25 billion company, uh, top 20, uh, awful business. They own 50% I mean. of Australia's poker machines, 100,000 poker machines. They've got out of the 200,000 in Australia. So awful, awful business, but gee, they're good at it. Right. You know, their, their, their net assets is only $3.8 billion and the market cap's 25.6. So that's one of my questions is, where's the other $22 billion on your books? And basically, the answer is they're just—it's just a cash machine. It's just goodwill built up. On oh, the other one was the Ainsworth family, because Len Ainsworth, the founder, is 98, and he gets a free car as part of his separation agreement. So I've asked, is he still getting a free car? Is he and still is he driving? driving? It is, he at driving? Ni- at yeah. is he driving? 98. And why don't someone's you give the Ainsworths a board someone's seat? Someone's got to take the keys off him. Yeah. And and why don't you give the Ainsworths a board seat? Because they own about 10 or 15 percent of the company, but it's spread between Len's seven sons, and they're not allowed to sue under the agreement with their father. And one of them did sue and got taken to the Supreme Court by their their father for suing his aristocrat shares and he had to give the cash to his dad. 
So one of my questions was, when Les, when Len goes, is there going to be an avalanche of selling by these boys who've not been allowed to sell for oh, the 20, 20 years they've been given the stock by their dad? Oh, and thank God right. for them because the stock's gone from well, as two always, bucks in Stephen, the float to 20 As always, 20 good bucks. questions. <laughs> yes, and I'll report in next week's column on the, uh, the answers. Now, listen, uh, to, before we get into the topics of the moment, well, one of them is AGL, but, but we need to note that two weeks ago in our last Money Cafe with you, you predicted that Michael Cannon-Brooks would buy or make a takeover offer for AGL and blow me down. He did. <laughs> that's right, the Oracle. So, uh, yes, look, that's probably one of my best uh, predictions, actually, because it does sound absolutely so mad. What, but what made you think of it? Well, someone else had said it to me a few months ago when I was talking about the demerger and what will happen to the demerger. And someone had just said, on the, just riffing with me, had said, well, maybe some billionaire like Mike Cannon Brooks will buy it and shut it down because it's not going to be worth much. So I just threw it in with you and I didn't think he'd bid for the whole thing. I thought he'd pick up the, the dregs of it and just shut it down as a genuine charity play. But he seems to be doing it as a business play with his joint venture with Brookfield. As, as you've, you've interviewed him this week, so you, you know about him, what he's doing. I interviewed him last night for half an hour. The interview is on the Eureka website as we speak for free. So those who are not Eureka subscribers can read it or listen to it. And um, I was interested, uh, very interested, to determine the extent to which it is a, an altruistic play. Or just political posturing. Well, it's clearly politically posturing. Mm. Uh, or as, um, as Peter Credlin wrote in her column in The Australian this morning, that he's woke. Oh. He's, a, he's a woke billionaire. There was, can, you, can there be anything worse? There was five <laughs> hours of abuse against him on Sky After Dark uh, the night that they announced it. I mean, the amount of attacks between, between you know, Chris Kenny, Credit. So what were Paul they Murray, abusing him for? Just this woke billionaire, greedy, he's going to put up prices, he's going to cause blackouts, he's politically posturing. He's, it was just extraordinary. And I thought they were sort of trying to in, intimidate him out of the public square. They were so aggressive. So my first question to you in the interview was, was the Prime Minister correct when he said that uh, the deal is 80% Brookfield, 20% Mike Cannon-Brooks? And he said, uh, we haven't worked that out yet. I mean, it's an what? absolute shotgun marriage. I don't think he's done any due he diligence. Hasn't worked it out. He's done what? no due diligence on Brookfield. Brookfield are sort of almost like the Babcock and Brown of Canada. Very aggressive, very that, that's, opaque, that's very leveraged. That is almost defamatory, no, Stephen. They're, they're, Be careful, we'll they're, get they're, sued. They're structurers, leveraged, unlisted, it's hard to read them. So, I mean, they've already got 30, 30 to 40 billion of assets in Australia and this will make them prop, arguably the biggest foreign investor in Australia after Rio if they pull this off. But I don't know Rio's that Mike, not foreign. Come on. Headquarters is in uh, London, the vast majority of the directors are there. Um, that's another anyway, issue. that's another talk. Anyway, so the next question was, um, okay, so whatever the whatever the percentages are between you and Brookfield, um, uh, are you prepared? Are you taking a lower return on the investment than Brookfield, which would tend to indicate whether he's mm. being altruistic or not? And the answer is, uh, of course not. No, exactly. He's you know, it's it's it, a basically, it's, and the reason he's doing it is to uh, invest twenty or uh, to invest in renewables in Australia yeah. with a guaranteed retail market yeah. of 4.5 million customers, which is AGL's customer base. Makes, and they're the stickiest customers because they're and he's old-fashioned. And, and he's paying $1,000 per customer, yeah. which yeah. is a bit high. It's not like it's not dirt cheap. Mm. AGL recently paid $500 per customer for a business. I can't yeah. remember the name of it now. 
but it's but all he, in the it's all in my he's, piece. He's, but the only reason he's bidding for it is to is the main reason is to shut down the, the the belching power stations, and it has depressed the value of the good retail elements so much that the whole thing makes sense. And why would you keep loss making power stations open anyway? I mean, if this thing is a dog, shut it down financially, which it is. They're they're losing money. That's why the share price has gone from twenty seven to seven. The, in the four year, was, three years. So, uh, what the interesting thing is that AGL bought these power stations fairly recently. Like they bought them um, ten years ago. Well, they paid one point five billion for Bayswater and Liddell in New South Wales in twenty fourteen and made a fortune in the early years. They so did. That, that's that true. That set their share price. They did a capital raising at eleven dollars to fund that, and the stock went to twenty seven within four years. So they almost got their full cash back, particularly after um, Hazelwood closed and the wholesale price spiked. So sometimes an investment can pay for itself in the first years and then be a debacle, like when Fairfax bought the, the, the newspaper in Albury for 160 years, 160 million, and then shut it down 10 years later. But for a few years, it made 20 million a year. So you can actually not have a dog depending on what the cash flow was over the first 10 years. So it was initially a great investment. Now it's a dog. Shut them down. Correct. <laughs> That's no, right. But I don't... Yeah, well, so I, the question is, is, are they going to succeed here? No, I, I don't think they'll succeed because I think that the they'll have to pay a lot more. The mistake they've made is they should have gone in and done a share market raid when the stock was sort of closer to five last November, December. So when the credibility was through the floor, they should have done the raid and snapped up 10%, 15%, and then people would have taken them seriously. Mike could have done that on his own and then brought Brookfield in to finance the broader deal. Brookfield couldn't enter the dance until after they completed the Osnet takeover, and that vote was only three or four weeks ago. So that's the mistake they've made and that's why people like me are not taking it that seriously and think it's more posturing than serious and I don't think they'll actually pull this off. And then if they do pull it off, Morrison will block it and Josh will block it. Um, So it'll have to be a Labor government, change of government to get this approved. Which is So the timing is interesting, doing it now before the election, but they have to get the bid away before the demerger takes place, which is June 30. So the demerger is what's driving the timetable, but the, pol- the, the politics in the election is also very interesting. Yes, indeed. Um, I was talking to my editor, or the editor of New Daily a minute ago, and he was saying that, um, just change the subject now, uh, that they're all waiting for uh, Putin to invade Ukraine, which is apparently going to take place in one hour from now. So by the time we publish this uh, Money Cafe, apparently the invasion will have begun. I- I'm not quite sure what that means. So, I mean, what, what are they going to roll into Kiev uh, or, um, or just into the, those regions in the east, Donbass and Luhansk? Well, I think I mean, to, to occupy a country of 43 million, you, you need more than 150,000 troops for that. So I think they'll start in the east and see how they go. Uh, I mean, they've already rolled into the east and declared those independent um, countries. But, uh, I mean, he really is just barking mad, isn't he, uh, Putin? And I'm surprised that the West hasn't sort of gone a bit harder saying that, you know, they'll fight for Ukraine. I mean, where is the fight in the West here? Not gonna, no one's going to go and send troops into Ukraine and defend Ukraine. They're on but their they, own. But they could do a bit of few air raids. Mind and, you. Take out a few of Putin's um, tanks and stuff just by the air. I mean, just to let him know it's not going to happen, you know. Where are they? Just sitting back saying... Send in the drones, you reckon? Send in the drones. Send in the drones. Yes. Send a few warships over there. Just... I think that... He's... he's, 
He's not, not being aggressive enough, um, Biden. I just think it's very disappointing. The Germans seem to be super pacifists. I don't know. Where is the West when this is happening? Where is the West? <laughs> Too worried about, you know, the oil price is going to go up and the consumers and, you know... Our, our luxurious yeah. well, consumer lifestyles is all too much trouble to save Ukraine. I think you make a good point. Anyway. Um, what else do you want to talk about before we get into the questions? Oh, well, you wanted to talk about Adore Beauty. Oh, look, I just wanted to uh, note that uh, Joe Aston's been giving Kate Morris, the founder of Adore Beauty, a terribly hard time uh, in the rear window column in the AFR, and the shares have plummeted by 60 or 70%. After the IPO of Adore Beauty, which is an online, you know, cosmetics shop. Um, and uh, Kate, but I, but I just was interested in that because I was um, talking to uh, her partner, whose name is Glow, uh, Justin Ryan. So Kate Morris has gone into business with a bloke called Justin Ryan, who used to be with Quadrant mm. Asset Management. And they've now set up a uh, private equity fund together. So um, they're off and running, and I guess, uh, you know, lessons have been learnt. Well, more than $200 million was taken out by the founders, and given that the float price was six seventy-five and the stock's now $2.11, I would much prefer Kate Morris to roll up her sleeves and focus on being the founder who restores some value rather than going off and spending her dollars on some other frolic. Um, that's point one. But I do agree. I mean, even Media Watch did her over for five minutes on Monday night Basically, the theme seemed to be the Fin Review talked this thing up and helped them overvalue it, which, I mean, no one buys shares based on the Fin Review. Um, so I thought it was a very unfair attack, and they all focused on Kate rather than Quadrant. Whenever there's a private equity person in the room and there's some sharp practice, blame them because private equity, that's what they do. They buy, they, they, they put a few ribbons on it, and they sell at the maximum price. And the door beauty... You had some wind assistance from the lockdowns and COVID, just like Kogan and a few others, and they opportunistically went to market, cashed in, and somehow Paul Paul Barry is blaming the Fin Review for writing a few nice pieces. I mean, it's a good story. She's done well. She's created value. She got the float away. It started off above the issue, okay. Post-COVID, it came back a bit. But it's just another dog float, like Rams and Newix and Boat Longyear and UECOM and there's so many of them. Never buy, never buy off private equity. That's the number one lesson for investors. Never Absolutely, buy off number private one. Equity. Never buy off private equity. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree. More. You wanted to say farewell to Rod Sims. Yes. Look, I watched his speech at the press club yesterday, and I just thought he was fantastic. I mean, I know he stuffed up with the cartel case on the ANZ share placement, but apart from that, I actually reckon he's been one of our greatest bureaucrats. I think he's done an even better job than Alan Fells. I loved his list of 10 things I've achieved you know maximum fine used to be a million now they're fining people 150 million 100 million Um, so massive revenue generator now for the government almost funding his own budget Um, and his 10 suggested things these are things that should happen like you can't have unfair clauses in contracts like that they have an automatic right to approve takeovers I didn't realise that they're not like FERB and they don't have an automatic right to approve a takeover they have to run in and intervene, knock the door down and and block it, rather than everyone having to go to them and say, please sign off. I thought his comments about how farmers are still getting ripped off were interesting, surprising, and, you know, where is the National Party if the ACCC boss is saying farmers are getting incredibly poorly treated? So if 
if Albanese wants to get elected, he should adopt Rod Sims's 10-point plan to improve consumer protection in Australia because, as Sims himself said, business fights tooth and nail to protect and, and stop all of his reforms because they want to be able to rip everyone off blind. And he reckons 90% of the community support what he wants to do to better protect the consumer. So appoint Rod Sims, you know, Labor consumer advisor, put a policy out saying this is the Rod Sims blueprint and Morrison will never do it because he'll never shaft his big business mates. Good idea. I, I, didn't, I didn't actually see his speech. Watch it. Or, you know, if they put, if they put on the website the, the 10 things that should be fixed. I mean, because he's had 10 years running it, so he's got a very big picture, clear-eyed view. Mm. Um, I mean, he's done great stuff. Like getting $200 million a year out of the, 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 the Google and Facebook for the old world media. World leading. Magnificent. I know it was all driven by Rupert thumping the table and, and the government was jumping to Rupert's tune, but, you know, even little players like no, that's, that's are getting out. some cash. Sure. Yeah. Lots of people are getting cash. It's really good. Mm. Um. Uh, okay, let's go to questions. Now, first, a few questions uh, giving you plaudits for your AGL Cannon Brooks call. So we'll just take those as read. Having, <laughs> so we won't read them all out. Yes. But the first question is from Luke. Says, how do you see a list of people that the, uh, the individual investor can appoint as their proxy when voting shares at AGMs? Or can it be anyone? Could I appoint Stephen, for example? Well, Luke, the only problem with appointing me is, is what if I'm not going... And even when I do go to these online AGMs like Aristocrat, um, I haven't logged in and, and picked up any proxies I had. So all I can suggest is that you should direct your votes uh, rather than appointing undirected proxies. And if you haven't got a, an opinion and it's a top 200 company, just appoint the Australian Shareholders Association because they do go to the top 200 company AGMs. They do vote $5 billion worth of undirected proxies each year for tens of thousands of shareholders such as yourself. And they have 100 volunteers who form considered positions before they vote. So I really strongly recommend um, you do that. Or we can do what some people do. They just vote against every remuneration report like at AFIC. It's always funny. You look at AFIC and Argo, they always get these big protests against their remuneration report because there's this hard core of retail shareholders who just, against, 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 no matter whether it's fair or not. <laughs> so uh, don't do that. Have a considered opinion, but yeah, go with the ASA is my view on that. Okay, so Simon asks, uh, after his little uh, Canon Books uh, comment on the prediction, um, I'd be interested to understand how this buyout would actually work. Is Mike Cannonbrooks just happy to take a big capital write down to take the plants offline, much like a multi-billion dollar donation, or is it a profitable business case for him, insider or not? Thanks always for the insights. Um, and the answer, of course, is that there is a profitable business case for him, and that's what he's doing it for. Um, and the business case is simply to create a renewable energy powerhouse in Australia that has its own customer base. Oh, that's oversimplifying it, but that's kind of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense. And uh, I'd be interested if someone else, I mean, like Macquarie claims to be, um, you know, world leader on renewables as well. I was sort of thinking maybe they would come in and make a rival bid, but they're advising AGL they on won't the defence. So then. that means they can't come in and launch their rival bid, which is what they, they often did. I thought Telstra might come in because, um, you know, those energy customers can be used as telecommunications customers, but the trouble with that is that there's a huge overlap between them. Their customer, a lot of the customers are the same people, so there's no point yeah. Telstra buying Well, them. Telstra's only a bidder once they've shed the ugly tail and done the demerger. Now, yeah, but demergers the, do usually lead to, to 
2 plus 2 equals 5. And you usually do get a takeover of at least one of the businesses within two years of the demerger. It's right. a very common thing. So therefore, they're doing the right thing in demerging it and then someone like a Telstra may bid for the good retail. It would make business. more sense for Optus or TPG to do it yeah. so that they could challenge Telstra. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know whether they could afford it's it. still a big bite though. I mean, it's five billion bite. for Telstra or Optus to come in just to get a, a big mailing list so they can twin up with their existing retail customer base and be a massive integration job too. So sure, that's right. I think it's probably too big for them, but uh, I'm just worried that if they do demerge Axel, that it will finish up as stranded assets and taxpayers will finish up cleaning up the mess yeah. and remediating the site and all this. So I do like the idea of keeping it together and having the good business fund the early closure and remediation of the bad business whilst keeping the lights on. Actually, that was another Rod Sims comment yesterday, which I'd never heard before. He said, on energy, he wishes that everyone would focus on the three things, which is reliability, sustainability and affordability. But everyone in the debate seems to focus on one or two of those. So the Greenies are all on sustainability, the Coalition is all on affordability, and the customers are interested in reliability. But why don't we just take a view which has all three of those things? And I thought that was more really good, sage advice from Rod Sims. Good old Rod. Uh, Manny says, this is probably for Mr Main, the POSCO takeover via scheme of arrangement of Cenex announced prior to the recent escalation in gas and oil prices. Does the offer to you appear over undercooked? The independent opinion predates the increases too. I'm concerned retail shareholders will be undervalued again. Do you well, have an opinion, there's, Stephen? There's 13,000 of us retail shareholders in um, in Cenex, and it was interesting. I mean, the takeover price went from 4 to 4.20 to 4.40 to 4.60 over the back half of last year. Lonigan Edwards, the independent expert, has valued the business at 4.17 to 4.92. But Manny is right. With the oil and gas price taking off, there is an argument that they're getting it on the cheap. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was voted down on March the 15th at the scheme meeting. Paradise Funds Management is the only substantial shareholder with 7%. So, yeah, make a decision on the day. If if the share price, if the gas price continues to, to rocket, and these guys are a fracking outfit in Queensland, uh, providing gas mainly for the domestic market... But, yeah, it's worth $880 million. And interestingly, Gina Reinhart has joined the Korean giants as a silent minority partner in the bit, a bit like the way Mike Cannon-Brooks has come in with 20% of Brookfield. So another billionaire. If Gina was buying, just like she got Atlas Iron on the steel or absolutely on the cheap, maybe Gina's appearance does say they're selling too cheap. So, Manny, let's start the revolt here and see if we can get our first ever defeated scheme of arrangement vote courtesy of retail shareholders. If more than 50% of retail shareholders vote against, it is defeated and they need 75% of shares. So no scheme's ever been defeated on the little guy. So Manny, get your campaign going, get some billboards up there, write to the shareholders. (laughs) If you can get 3,000 of them to say no, this deal will not go ahead. Okay, Josh. Josh says, with... Uh, oh, this is your I'll turn. do it, yeah. No, with, un- with uncertainty and inflation all around, to what extent are hybrids helpful as part of our strategic allocation? Tradable in the market, low volatility, y- low yield, sure, but it will rise as inflation does, right? Feels like a winner, at least while we're on the brink of World War Three. What do you reckon, Alan? Uh, well, uh, uh, not giving uh, personal advice here, but as a general rule, I'd say that this is a good time to borrow with fixed rates and... Uh, lend or invest with floating rates because rates are going up. So you want to 
take advantage of rates going up and hybrids are generally, in fact, always floating rate. And so, uh, in principle, hybrids are a good thing. I agree. Superior cash yield to term deposits. I preferred the hybrids that uh, guaranteed 100 cents in the dollar return at a maturity date rather than a, a perpetual one. Um, people forget how low interest rates are, are causing so much pain. I mean, the aged care sector has $33 billion in residential bonds. The reason they're going out the back door financially is they're getting no returns. I'm trying to tell our one in Manningham, go for hybrids, just get a bit of extra cash, you know, it's low risk. And QBE, QBE's got $29 billion of funds under management and it's all in, in, in zero-yielding liquids cash. So I don't know why QBE doesn't get into hybrids to get that yeah. little extra return sure. with minimal extra risk. No, because yeah, because their constitution would say you've got to be bonds. Yeah, that's right. That's you've right. got to be bonds or short, yeah. short dated, you know, bills sort of thing. Okay, Stephen Here's a asks. Question from Stephen. I'm relatively new to investing and have not invested in an ETF before. I'm currently looking at the Fang ETF, and have a question of how they work. Do ETFs have a fixed number of shares or units on issue, or are they able to issue new capital similar to a listed company? The answer is they list, they issue shares all the time. Uh, as in, people come in. As people come in. Yeah. It's like because a super fund. That's right. They do not have a fixed number of shares or units on issue. No. no. So the, the the brokers supporting the ETF will continue to buy the physical stock uh, to deal with the growth or reduction as clients come in or go out. But it's not like a public company where you do a, a one for two rights issue where everyone's got to put up cash or get diluted. So, I mean, you, ought, you do get diluted, but it's, it's everyday dilution based on new people coming in, no different to unit pricing in a super fund. Yeah. Your turn. Okay, Greg asks, just wanted to hear your thoughts on Lark Distilling after the recent incredible CEO resignation. Is this a good buying opportunity or a falling knife? Well, firstly, Jeff Bainbridge is a huge liar and poor old Lara Carey, the PR person who came up with that concoction of lies about being in Singapore in 2015 and I thought it was a very good piece of journalism to reveal that that video actually was taken in his Middle Park house, which he only bought in 2020, courtesy of some videos that were on the realestate.com.au website. So very good journalism to catch out a liar um, so I think the business is still probably great a bit more famous now you want to have a famous whiskey brand so I think it's probably a reasonable buy but for the fact that the CEO owns what 15% or 17% and that stock's probably overhanging it and maybe he did have some relationships and was a, a legend that will be lost but he is out and there's no coming and, back and really you've got to say good riddance well I remember you made a comment about, you know, could he hang in there, but but the lying was just... I mean, it's one no, thing no, to he be... Can't, no, he couldn't hang... Well, he, he can't hang in there. No, no. Well, not after lying. Like, no. I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to be you know, drunken or drug-addled drug a few years ago and then to explain it. It's another thing to come out and absolutely just blatantly lie to the world yeah. about the circumstances. So good riddance to him. Okay, so Brad... Brad says, with Aussie elections coming up and Stephen being a councillor, if he was to enter federal politics, what would be, what would be some of the biggest economic issues he would fix... Uh, as a future Aussie PM, I think we need we need to be here all day. Oh, we can't. Well, that's right. I mean, you we're, need to keep this brief, We're already 27 Stephen. minutes in. Well, I'd, I'd introduce the Rod Sims uh, legislative to-do list. I, I'd print $70 billion and nationalise transurban and then give the assets back to the three close-to-bankrupt states and allow them a bit more diversified revenue. Federal ICAC, inheritance tax, uh, 10% of everything above $5 million. Billionaire tax, once you've got a billion, you've got to surrender the rest. You don't need more than a billion. Um... 
Look, there's a few things, but um, I mean, he, he mentioned Manningham, and I'm going to because his uh, a relative was a mayor of Manningham. I'm going to give you a great piece of trivia. Manningham Council owns 76 public tennis courts. Guess how many private tennis courts there are in Manningham? 1,400. Good God. Biggest in the world. And that's because of the planning rules. We've got 5,500 acre lots and above, and the planning rules say you're not allowed to subdivide, you're not allowed to have a second dwelling on there. So all you can do is plant a few fruit trees and stick on a tennis court in a pool. So we've got 1,400 of them. Wow. Including Brian, Brian Quinn's... Uh, the the right. house that he did fraud on was one of those Manning houses. Uh, including, including yours, no doubt. No, seven. no, I'm on 700 square metres. Very <laughs> humble. Very humble knockdown job. So. <laughs> okay, Toby, my question relates to Alan's 7.30 special about house prices from a few months back. It appears to me that one of the main reasons house, house prices have gone up so much in the last 30 years is because interest rates have been consistently coming down. In the early 90s, the RBA cash rate was 17% and over the subsequent three decades, it's worked its way down to 0.1%. However, it now looks like interest rates have bottomed out and will begin to rise again. In the absence of a serious recession, it's hard to imagine the RBA taking the cash rate any lower than it is today. What do you think this means for long-term house price growth in Australia? Can prices really continue to go up without the assistance of falling interest rates, or are we looking at a long period of flat price growth? Um, so, in my opinion, we are looking at a period of flat house price growth. I don't know how long it would be. The, the history shows you that the typical period of uh, flat house price growth is about three to four years. Um, that's if you look at nominal terms. If you look at real terms, um, it actually, between, between about 1970 and 1990, real house prices didn't change. So there was 20, 20 years of no change in real house prices, and that was partly because during the 70s there was very high inflation, so house prices need to go up a lot in order to keep up with inflation. But if you look at nominal terms, three to four years is normal, and I think that's what we're in for now. And I will throw in and say, yes, interest rates won't go negative. I think they'll only rise to 1.5. That won't send house prices tumbling. But we are in a bubble with, with many asset classes. And I think the big difference is housing versus apartments. So apartments are still reasonably value, reasonable value and reasonably affordable. Inner city housing is ridiculously bubbled and fringe fringe housing, you know, 40Ks from town is better value but not great value and not great lifestyle. So, yeah, it depends on what sort of housing. But uh, I do like the fact that regional housing has become more valuable post-COVID because Australia, oh, it never made sense that we've got 80% of the people living in the cities and that the house prices in the bush were so cheap. So, it's good to see COVID pushing up regional house prices. Now, I think that will stick too. So Victor. Victor says, I have a few questions about the Coalition's failed proxy advisor legislation. Is the Coalition looking at having another crack in the future? If, I, if I'm a member of an industry super fund, what effect would it potentially have on my balance? Would I be better off in a retail super fund if this legislation gets passed in the next term of a Coalition government? Okay, so the proxy advisor legislation has nothing to do with super returns because the proxy advisors actually advise industry funds and retail super. Yes. It would just mean less informed voting for institutions, uh, not-for-profits and for-profits. So I would support industry funds over retail for the old reasons of lower fees, 
uh, not conflicted by for-profit motives and better historical performance. As for the coalition, they haven't said whether they're going to have another crack at this legislation. If Josh is sensible, he would walk away, but there is a visceral hatred of industry funds and some people who hate compulsory super. And the AICD and the Business Council have not jumped off that horse yet. So Josh may well go again, but he'll need to put it in his platform. And if he does, he'll find some extra attention in Kuyong from a few interested parties, which I think he wouldn't enjoy. So my advice to Josh, if he's listening, walk away, son. You've got enough trouble on your hands trying to see off Monique Ryan in Kuyong without having the proxy advisory industry and their friends handing out how to vote cards on the day. I'm sure he's listening, Stephen. He always listens. That's right. Now, Jim, I hear that as a funds, I hear that as funds become bigger, it becomes hard to move the dial. E.g., Berkshire Hathaway. With my fund Australian Super, is there a risk they become too large to maintain their previous percentage growth rates? Well, in th- yes, in general, that's true. The bigger the fund manager, the uh, the um, harder it is, to, as you say, to move the dial. The Both diff- ways. The thing is that Australian Super isn't really a fund manager. It employs fund managers. And so, um, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, not a, it's not a single fund in a way. I mean, so, uh, you know, yes, I, I think it's okay. I, I think it's unlikely that Australian Super's returns will be uh, will suffer because they get big because um, they can easily, you know, uh, hold make uh, fund managers more accountable. Uh, and as fund managers' returns decline because those fund managers get bigger, they can move the money to smaller ones. And it's worth remembering they're not even in the top 50 in the world. So it's not like they're at a trillion dollars where then you do have scale challenges. So, you know, we have a massive amount of compulsory super and still uh, not a very scaled industry, although I know that my fund, the, the media union fund, is currently merging with the... CBUS. So I've got the CFMEU boys now looking after my super shortly once that goes through. So, yeah. But look, the thing about uh, Aussie super is um, so you've they've got, got scale, so they can do things like joint venture with Transurban on the toll roads, take Sydney Airport private. I don't like the way they're doing special capital raisings, which are shafting retail shareholders at Syrah Resources and Sandfire Resources. Recently, they've cornerstoned uh, capital raisings and taken the retail shortfall. So I don't like them doing that, but I guess it's better them making money on capital raisings rather than UBS and all the big foreign investment banks. So exactly. So they're pushing the envelope, but it's all about increasing their return. So I think I think they're going to continue to outperform because of the benefit of scale and, and long-term holdings yeah. and throwing their weight around. Tommy says, I'm a young person interested in economics, and I hope this isn't a silly question, but how does the market price in interest rates? When economists and investors say that the market is pricing in a rate rise in 2022, what does this actually mean? It's not a silly question at all, Tommy. And so what they're talking about is the futures market, where people buy and sell contracts uh, concerning securities um, in in the future. And so somebody will say, I will buy um, an X security, which might be a uh, which might be a three month bill rate or a bond or something and I'm going to buy those in 2023 and I'll pay X dollars for that at that moment and that uh, that price uh, actually turns into an interest rate that they believe the interest rates will be in that at that point and so when people and so what when we talk about the futures market is pricing in a certain interest rate in 2023 or 2024 we're averaging all the bets that people are placing on these securities, uh, the prices that they're paying for those securities in the future, 
And so it's basically an average of uh, of, ga- of bets, yeah. people's people's gambles. So, so you said last night on the news, the ABC News, you, you mentioned buy the rumour, sell the fact. I think it was oil prices on Ukraine. But that's another... So what you've just talked about is, is actual future pricing. So it physically is pricing. People, but there's people. also something like Crown Resorts where the share price is 12.36, but Blackstone is offering $13.10. So that's an example of the market pricing in the regulatory risk of the deal being blocked oh, yeah, uh, by sure. state government. So whenever you see a takeover bid and the share price goes above that, the market is pricing in someone else bidding or the predator Which is what's happening lifting, with AGL. Yeah, or the predator lifting their price. So there is actual pricing in where you can see the actual amount like you've talked about and then there's just every share price is pricing in every known fact in the market yeah andrew final question andrew hypothetically if you were ready to make a long-term investment in the share market spread across some etfs and blue chip shares would you consider the 10 percent correction seen during january as creating favorable conditions for buying or do you think 2022 is a wait and see year see how the chips fall after possible interest rate rises and inflationary pressures. One might ponder whether an investor would care in 20 years' time that they bought in early 22, only to see the market crash shortly after. A penny for your thoughts, Alan. Oh, Alan, he didn't say Alan. I've added that wants, I'm, wants, I'm pivoting to you, Alan. Oh, I I'm see, right. i the handball. Well, I'm, I'm uh, interested in your thoughts too, but, uh, but I would say... Uh, it depends. Or it depends entirely on how much it crashes. I mean, in twenty, if, if the if the market crashed fifty percent, say as it did in eighty seven, then in twenty years' time you would care. But uh, it's not going to do that, probably. I mean, it's so, always better to buy after a ten percent correction than before it. Of course, of course. So I, right. I always like to you know look for the look for the correction. But you're right; it could then crash another thirty percent, and that's when you've got to keep telling yourself it can't go to zero. I remember when the All Lords got to 3111 in March 2009 and that was the absolute bottom and I was saying on the radio, it can't go to zero. It has to hit a bottom at some point. And, of course, we all should have bought that day. So yes. I think, I think so, yeah. any 10% correction is, is worth nibbling, but just never leave yourself fully committed until it's fallen 50%. That's when you go in, you know, boots and all. Exactly. When it's absolutely crash and everyone is despairing. It's the middle of the COVID crash in March 2020 or it's GFC or it's, uh, you know, that's when you go in. Yeah, the COVID crash was 37%. That was a, that was a buying opportunity. Yeah, yeah. 10%, so 10% is a is a fairly... Start nibbling. A, it's a nibble. It's a, it's a relaxed 20, 20% buying opportunity. 20% is okay. I'm now I'm getting interested. 30% is all right. I'm going to mortgage the house and go for it. And 40% is all in. <laughs> all in. All in. There you go. That's, that's the Stephen Main... Rule. I mean, we could get, you know, China and Russian wars and a massive black swan event being World War Three and the market down 50%. That's the worst case scenario in 2022. Um, don't think it'll happen, but you never know. Well, that's it. We're at time. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe and uh, Stephen Main. James Thompson will be back next week in the Short Straw Cafe. Send in your questions and we'll get to them next week. Send them into the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. And I should say that we got far more questions today that we could 30. possibly answer. 30. So we had to chop them back. And I'm sorry for those who didn't get their questions answered today. Very sorry. Just couldn't do it. We'd have to be, we'd be here we all day. We should do a bit of a Q&A on the website. I'm happy to answer a few if you want to put them at the bottom of the column on Monday maybe. Right, well, anyway, we'll see how we go. Okay, we'll but see how we go. It's but, good but, to be overwhelmed like that. But, but, Full board, of So course. we will p- p- send in your questions, but you know, we, we are going to choose the best ones. And keep them to two paragraphs. 
if you can. Like at, at AGMs, they have a, a limit on the number of characters. So I think we should introduce that. Characters? Yeah. Yeah. You know. You're a character, Stephen. Yeah, so I can just so keep, keep they it should, to, keep it limit to 100, number of 150 words. Stephen Main max. characters. We're not going to have any more Stephen Mains than one. Hey, we're almost at 40 minutes. We've got to sign off. Otherwise, oh, okay. we'll pay a fortune for the transcripts. So. Okay. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. Oh, and I'm just Stephen Main. Finance guy on the ABC News, <laughs> etc. You are Stephen Main. That's it. See you next week. <laughs>